Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and all major podcast providers. So if you can't catch the show live, you can download it or simply use our free podcast player, which is available on our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to connect with us, please post a question on our wall on Facebook or send me a tweet at June Stoyer on Twitter. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Austria's Finest Naturally, authentic pumpkin seeds and pumpkin seed oil from the Steiermark, available at OrganicUniverse.com. Listeners of the Organic View can receive $1 off their purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. Also, don't forget to check out our contest section on our website to submit your information for our free monthly giveaways. For more information, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com forward slash contests. Today, my guest is the Reverend Mitch Hescox, and we're going to be talking about mercury and the unborn. Approximately one in every six babies in the USA are born with harmful mercury levels in their blood. Consumption of fish contaminated by mercury is the main route of human exposure. The mercury drops from the air into the water system, where fish that is eaten eventually take it up. Mercury is extremely toxic to the brain and nervous system, especially to the rapidly developing brain of the unborn child during early pregnancy. When a pregnant woman eats mercury-contaminated fish, the mercury in the fish enters the mother's bloodstream. Once in the mother's bloodstream, mercury can move directly across the placenta to enter the body of her unborn child. One of the body's protective shields against damage to the brain, called the blood-brain barrier, is not fully developed until the first year of life. Thus, in the unborn child, mercury can cross this incomplete barrier and accumulate in the brain, causing developmental disabilities and brain damage resulting in lowered intelligence and learning problems. This has lifetime implications, and one study found that the resulting loss of intelligence causes diminished economic productivity that persists over the entire lifetime of these children. The unborn are also being harmed by air pollution that will be reduced as a co-benefit of the mercury standard. This pollution has been linked to birth defects, lowered birth weight, premature births, stillbirths, and infant deaths. The Evangelical Environmental Network is a ministry dedicated to the care of God's creation. The Reverend Mitch Hescock serves as president and CEO of the, the Evangelical Environmental Network, publisher of Creation Care magazine. He has testified before Congress, appeared on CNN, NPR, PRI, and numerous radio programs, both Christian and secular. He's also been named one of the 10 environmental religious saints by the Huffington Post. So I would like to welcome to the show Reverend Mitch Hescox. Good afternoon and happy happy Easter. Well, thank you, June. I appreciate being here. It is awesome to be on your show, and it's just uh, wonderful to be part of, um, hopefully, your listener audience to share my faith and why we do what we do, and obviously for all of us to rally around to protect our children and all of us from toxic chemicals and other forms of environmental damage that affects the whole world and the population of the whole world. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that people still have this uh, perception that when it comes to environmental issues, uh, it's either an issue for the left uh, or it's some religious issue or, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense because the bottom line is is that when it comes to the environment, it affects each and every one of us. So, you know, when it comes to anybody that is doing something to raise awareness and do something positive to help 
to help people and to also educate people, I think these folks should be supported. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so glad that you are here today. Um, and also uh, to help celebrate uh, or kick off the Easter season uh, with the audience. I know that there are many um, people out there that are going to be celebrating uh, this weekend and for the next several weeks to come. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. Oh, it's awesome to be here. And I'm just, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm, I'm glad to be here because, you know, sharing my faith and, and talking about the church and people of faith and, you know, for us, you know, we're supposed to be the first environmentalists. Uh, you know, in our scriptures, our holy book, you can go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and it says that we're called to tend and care for the garden. So, you know, right in the beginning of our holy work, you know, we're commanded to be good stewards. And, you know, I think that's one of the messages that we'd like to, to get across is that we have a lot in common with people who maybe not be a faith, but for people of faith, one of the first priorities is caring for God's creation. And especially for us, in our terminology, we have a little saying at, at my organization that creation care is a matter of life. And what we mean by that is how we care about God's creation, plants, water, animals, really determines how we care about human life because how we care about the earth the environment really dictates what we really believe about human life now on that note i'd also like to mention that i'm a little surprised that there's so many people out there that are concerned about plants that are concerned about animals but don't have that same regard for human life and i just find that a little disturbing uh, but that's that's my own observation. Well, and I think that that's part of, and, and not that we're not supposed to care for animals and not that we're supposed to call for plants, but I, to, to us and me especially as a person of faith, I think that's what's, quite honestly, that's what got the separation, especially in the evangelical church and maybe other Christians, when they, they saw people focusing in on what they would say is earth worship or lifting up the earth above human beings that those tended to put a fracture between those who really cared about the earth and stewardship and environmental concerns and people, some people of faith, especially my more conservative brothers and sisters. It's, um, we don't want to replace God, and we don't. God, we worship God, but he's commanded us to care for the earth. Because, again, turning back to Genesis, I believe that um, God created a world, a planet that was sustainable. On Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 30, talks about how God made a planet for birds, for animals, for life, that there would be enough food for all things, for all people, for all animals, if we would care for it properly. And so it's an issue of sustainability. It was designed that way, and I believe that with all my heart. And unfortunately, because of our sin, our mistakes, our sometimes looking for other priorities, we've taken away this sustainable planet. I mean, one of the things that just is shocking to me is is that in, you know, we lose in the United States about 10% of our topsoil a year. Some, some people say as high as 20. In Africa, we're losing topsoil at the rate of 40% a year. Wow. We're, we're, we will not have topsoil in 25 or 30 years if we continue the way we're operating. In the United States, it's primarily due to one of the largest is mechanized agriculture, the overuse of nitrogen fertilizers and not, you know, putting nitrogen back into the soil the God way, the natural way. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I was just out on the golf course and I think I'm a little dried out here, but, <laughs> oh, man, but that it, was it's my true. surprise. Right. Especially with the fact that we are pounding the the earth with all sorts of, uh, chemicals, and especially with, uh, if I can uh, just briefly talk about this, especially with the new agro technologies that are push that are pushing uh, these neonicotinoids, which are systemic pesticides, in conjunction with the GMOs. I mean, it's it's a dynamic duo that is really devastating the earth. Not to mention wiping out the honeybees, and this is a huge problem. People don't seem to 
understand what's going on until they have a reason to. And that is really what's unfortunate. But the bottom line is is that there are so many people that are speaking out about this. And once again, it's not an issue that belongs to a particular faith, a particular uh, political group or not. It, it belongs to everyone. Every human being has an obligation to be concerned about this and to take action about it because, you know, it's our earth. We need to do something about it. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are just like, you know, um, let somebody else deal with it or they just don't think that it's a big deal. I've even had some folks reach out to me that have said, you know, I'm still not convinced. And it, it just, it's amazing that people have that uh, that mentality. Well, just yesterday, um, and I haven't read the paper in detail, so I won't be an expert, but there was a, a new study that came out um, on organic phosphate pesticides that says that now that the levels are found in the study that they did in women's bodies in the United States that's causing low birth weight, uh, reduced gestation periods, and basically it's comparable to a woman who has smoked throughout her pregnancy. Wow. And, you know, this is uh, published in Environmental Health Perspectives, you know, not a ultra-liberal paper, but a scientific study. And I think that's one of the things that, that we're trying to, to drive home to people is that how we use chemicals, whether they be pesticides, whether they be putting mercury in the air from coal-fired power stations, there are consequences. And the most severe consequences they are are to our unborn children and our newly born infants because they're not just little adults. Their bodies behave. And, you know, I'm not a physician, but I know from my readings that, you know, they metabolize things so much faster. They don't have the developed kidneys and liver to process and get rid of some of these toxins. And especially, you know, what people thought that the placenta, as you mentioned earlier, was the great stoppage of all chemicals is proving not to be completely false. It's just, you know, whatever a woman takes into her body makes its way into her child. Well, Mitch, I think the problem is, is that people are stuck on old data. They're stuck on old studies. I mean, I was just interviewed recently and was asked the question, well, is there a, a top ten food, uh, list of foods, organic foods, that people should always buy, and then, uh, you know, are there other foods where you can compromise? And I don't believe that the host of the show appreciated my answer because I was very honest and said you should only buy organic. And I guess they're still holding on to old old data and the bottom line is the technology has advanced i mean if you think about it that makes perfect sense that it would advance um especially since it's a very very profitable sector and the more uh, aggressive the technology can be uh why not but the bottom line is is that we need to consistently educate ourselves and other people that people can understand that, you know, maybe that might have been the case 50 years ago, but in this day and age, with the new technology that has emerged, especially, you know, once again, I'm going to refer to the neonicotinoids. The neonicotinoids, it's a whole new family of pesticides. It's, you know, it, it, it's absorbed into the plant's vascular system. So the bottom line is, is that any fruit that's produced, it's not on the skin. It's not something that you can wash off. It's in the fruit. And, you know, this isn't my opinion. There are studies out there, including research done by Dr. Hank Tenekis in the Netherlands. Uh, Harvard just recently pub published a study. Purdue also published a study, and I had the luxury of interviewing Dr. Christian Krupke uh, a couple of weeks ago. And the information is out, but, uh, you know, the EPA is still uh, not convinced, and hopefully we can change that. Uh, especially with all the um, all the public um, concern and all the different uh, petitions and, and just the demonstrations, so on and so forth, to get these chemicals, uh, you know, just off the market. But uh, getting back to what you're saying, with the information that's out there, um, I mean, when it comes to educating women, especially pregnant women or women that are looking to start a family, what information is out there and 
how who's disseminating this information? Well, I think you know, as, as far as I can't answer all those questions, but I think that I know who hasn't. I mean, um, at least from my wife and, and my daughters who have both given birth in the past five years to children. The one thing that I can say that on the mercury that we fighting out is the doctors are, have been very good at saying you know limit the amount of fish you eat and because you know the omega threes that are in fish are highly beneficial, but we have to be cautious. You know, one meal a week maximum, and I think those are things that we really need to focus in on. And especially if you're eating locally caught fish, to be a smart enough consumer to go to each state's website, their whatever their Office of Environmental Protection is, and find out what's in the water. I live in Pennsylvania. Um, I actually watched a man fishing in a stream last year that said, do not eat any fish from it. Don't even catch them. And he was fishing there. And so I went back home and found out that particular stream, it was uh, uh, feeding into the Schuylkill River in Valley Forge, um, is contaminated with PCBs and mercury. But there are still a tremendous amount of people in the United States, especially those who are living on the margins, that depend on locally caught fish for a source of protein. And we need to have 40% of the fresh water in the United States is contaminated with mercury. 40%. Wow. That uh, is... It's disgraceful. And, and, and one of the things we don't know is there has not been a large amount of data of ocean fishing of how much mercury is contaminated, especially near coastal waters, because there's been a lot of resistance from the commercial fishing industry to actually test the waters. I I can't understand why anybody would eat fish coming from the ocean. I mean, I will mention I am a vegan, but beside the point, I mean, I don't expect everybody to do the things that I do, but it's just from a health perspective. The BP oil spill, it's not like it was 50 years ago. This just happened, and people are eating lobster. They're eating shrimp. They're eating all the bottom dwellers, and I just don't understand why. I mean, it's not like the environment is just going to clean itself up. That was such a disaster, and the water is still contaminated. Um, It it just is mind-blowing that people still consume fish from there. And, and, you know, from my perspective, God's provided a way for those things to be cleaned up, but it will take 8 to 10 years after we start dumping so many chemicals into it to really get a start on it. And, And that's something that we just have to be aware of. You know, we've seen studies from Florida and in Massachusetts where the waters have cleaned up because of just uh, of natural cycles of renewing, of flushing it out to the ocean in some cases and being diluted, other times just being broken down. But mercury especially, lead, arsenic, all the heavy metals last an extremely hard time, long time, excuse me. And we need to be aware of that. And that's why we need to stop pumping them out into our air, pouring them into our water, and getting involved. But one thing I would like to say back on to all kinds of agriculture and farming, one thing that I I feel very strongly about is you're right, we need to educate people, but we also need to take responsibility for ourselves. When you know, I, I'm I'm fifty five years old today, so I'm you know, the end of the baby boomer generation. When I was gro- when I was growing up, we still had our own family garden yes we canned our own vegetables my daughter who lives in the city of portland oregon you know now does the same thing living in a small house in the city because she wants to renew that return to that you know for the sake of convenience for the sake of the lifestyle that we as a nation have chosen to live we have some culpability in some of these decisions of how we grow and eat our food and if there is one thing that I can encourage people to do, is start. I mean, I don't care if you live in an apartment. You know, you can grow some of your own food. Get involved and have a community garden. Do some things that you can do that where you can control what's put into the soil, what type of seeds are purchased, and how you grow your food. And take charge of your life. We don't have to be dependent upon all the big industrial farming or other things. We can return to a more simple lifestyle if we're willing to allow, to give ourselves some of the time to do that. And, and, what, and what's interesting is that um, 
there are many people out there that are uh, trying to educate communities uh, such as Sweetwater. Um, I had the founder, James Godsell, on recently, and what Sweetwater does is they help communities build aquaponic systems. And mm-hmm. basically what aquaponics is, uh, it's not hydroponics, it's aquaponics. And, uh, you know, it's it, you're growing food organically. You can't use uh, pesticides. It'll kill the fish. But it's, it's a nice little system that um, you can actually um, set up either on a small scale uh, where you're using recycled materials or materials that might otherwise wind up in a landfill. And um, I also had Suzanne Friend on from Friendly Aquaponics in Hawaii, and all they do is conduct classes and educate people about how to build these models. And the thing is, is that if you're located in an area where you have either poor uh, soil or if you have limited water, the aquaponics method of growing food is really fantastic. And there are a number of models that utilize solar uh, and alternative energy so that you do not need to use any fossil fuels whatsoever. And what's nice about it is, is that it enables you to grow your own food and whatever food and whatever you choose to grow you can you know you can do just that and i agree the more that we reconnect and take responsibility for how our food is grown then we can really make significant change as a society absolutely and, and, and even with the epa and the other government regulatory things what we need to do as a people is to stand up you know, we certainly have battles to fight against some big industry that would like to stop some of these regulations and changes to put through. But guess what? If we gather around all of your listeners, people of faith, anybody concerned about the health of our children, the health of ourselves, if we rally around, we can get things done to put the kind of proper laws and regulations out there to stop some of these things from happening. Plus, if we're taking charge of our own lives, then we can also decrease the demand for these other things. So we can do things two ways. We can make a market decision and grow our own food or buy organics, or, and we can rally up to change and put pressure on those policymakers to do it. And it works. We can do that, but we have to stand together. We have to rally together. I just want to mention something that came in from the audience. I received a really sweet email from a gentleman named Mike Brown, who sent me a graphic that shows um, uh, an image of food and an image of uh, GMOs. And and it says, uh, God made organisms uh, and man made genetically modified organisms. Who do you trust? And, you know, there's, it's a very, um, a very powerful image because, you know, it makes you think. Um, do you trust something that has been created in a laboratory? And people don't even understand the fact that with GMOs, you're not breeding. You are basically crossing species, and they're facilitating uh, the process with a virus. And we don't know what's going to happen uh, after consuming um, even a portion of it, what it's going to do to our bodies in years to come. And that's that is the big problem. And with the push for for GMO labeling, uh, it's just amazing that they're fighting this tooth and nail because they don't want people to know how how many uh, ingredients are derived from genetically modified crops. Absolutely. Now, um, in in, uh, conjunction with the uh, awareness with mercury um, is it state by state that has the advisory um, information or I mean is there anything on the federal website Um, I'm just curious and also um, what about the imported fish I mean who controls that the answer is nobody quite honestly Um, on the, the answer to your first question, if you go to EPA's EPA to slash mercury, you'll find highlighted the states that have mercury fish consumption advisories, which are all. But in all honesty, to go to specific rivers, lakes, 
and the other contaminants, you need to go by a state-by-state basis to go to their uh, Department of Environmental Protection or whatever the local state is to get that information for, for particular bodies of water. And so it's out there. There are advisories in all 50 states, but you need to do your homework to get to them. Thank you. Uh, Mitch, we do have a call, so let's take the call. Well, caller, do you have a question for Mitch? Um, actually, you know, I am very interested in the topic that you're talking about. You know, I want to know a little more about the mercury that's in the fluorescent light bulbs and how it affects our children in the schools. Well, actually, I can answer that one pretty quickly. If it, the older versions of fluorescent light bulbs have great deals of a great amount of mercury in it, and they need to be replaced. If you're talking about the movement towards the compact fluorescent light bulbs, the advantage of it for every, for every compact fluorescent light bulb actually saves the amount of mercury being emitted from a coal-fired generating station. So you're actually reducing the levels of mercury by using CFLs. That said, my own personal preference is they're a little more expensive if they're coming down is go, you get the energy efficiency and no mercury by going to LEDs. So DFLs actually reduce total mercury, but if you can afford them and, you know, go to some of the local stops and and buy um, the LEDs. In my home, we have a combination of CFLs, and as they do go out, we properly dispose of them. There are great guidelines in places to dispose of them properly so they don't get returned into the soil, but then we replace them with LEDs. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for the call. Now, Mitch, I want to uh, now. I'd like to um, just talk a little bit more about the uh, the work of the EEN as far as uh, getting information out there, especially to uh, the pregnant women and uh, also mothers that are or, or women that are looking to become mothers. Can you just talk about some of the initiatives that your organization has? Sure. Well, right now one of our biggest things has been, because it's still very hot in the news, is the reduction of mercury from coal-fired utilities and industrial boilers that burn primarily coal. Um, they're responsible, for coal-fired industrial, coal-fired boilers for the utilities are responsible about 50% of our national mercury emissions and industrial boilers about another 20%. The rest of it comes from other forms of energy and release, forest fires, some naturally occurring things. So we've been working very hard hard, um, to get these regulations put on the books. And what happened is, back in 1990, a bipartisan Congress under the first President Bush reinstituted or made the, the new Clean Air Act. And that's 22 years ago now. And just now, after 22 years, we are starting to get some of the regulations that Congress authorized and put down to protect our children um, that are happening. And they have not happened because there's been a lot of industry pressure not to control these harmful substances like mercury, reducing the amount of particulate matter, lead, and so there's been a big fight, and obviously right now in Congress, there is uh, many members of Congress who are more willing to listen to big utility interests at times than they are interested in protecting, in my opinion, human health. That's where I testified recently at Congress, uh, over, is that they wanted to kill these bills that would stop mercury. And it's a shame because, you know, it, they cost money to put these controls on coal-fired power plants, um, it will cost the average household owner across the United States 3 to $4 a month in a higher electric bill to put these controls on. But the payback and medical costs are about 9 to 1. So I think most of us would like that kind of return. And I don't know who, too many people that would not be willing to pay $50 a year to help reduce mercury that literally impacts 1 in 6 children in the United States. No, is it? Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting. Um, I've never been a big fan of the government and uh, everybody's business, but the bottom line is, is that when it comes to 
certain issues, um, unfortunately, uh, we need the government to step in to say, okay, well, you need to do this, this, and this, because unfortunately, there are folks out there that will basically go to town because they don't have anybody to tell them, no, you can't do this. And to me, it seems like a wayward teenager where unless the parent has you know, the firm hand and says, okay, this is your curfew, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do, kid's going to do whatever he or she wants. And when it comes to certain uh, certain technologies, certain um, sectors, unfortunately, because the industry hasn't uh, regulated itself, it's at a point where, okay, well, now we have to go back to mom and dad and get them involved. And uh, you can see this in so many different sectors, it's ridiculous. And it's a shame that it's gotten to this point, but unfortunately, without certain uh, regulations in place, it's just going to continue. And the sad thing is, is that the companies that are creating these problems, they're they're exposed to the same uh, environmental issues that everybody else is. So you would think that they would want to uh, take some initiative to do things the right way, but unfortunately. Uh, their only obligation by law is to make money for their shareholders. And uh, instead of being accountable for what uh, their products are are doing, uh, they're letting it get to the point where they're being forced to do so. And uh, I think that's a shame. Well, and I think that's right. And I think your description is, is pretty apt. The way I like to describe it is, that we need some some common collective boundaries that work, and for me, the best example is speed limits. You know, even though there are people that go on highways and don't obey the speed limits, if they get caught, they're subject to a penalty. But what would be the roads like around your home, among my home, if anybody could do whatever speed limit they wanted to do? It would cause havoc. It would be anarchy, and I think the same is true with reasonable regulations. Again, I, I freely admit that I'm a registered Republican. I, I'm a more conservative than I am liberal in many things, but I also realize that we need to have a common set of boundaries, especially, let's look, you know, go back to the Clean Air Act. It was authorized in 1990. This is 2012, and we still do not have in place laws that would protect our kids, protect human health, for 22 years because we've had people fighting against protecting our kids for 25 years in lieu of profits. And I think those are some things that I'm not saying the profits aren't a good thing. I mean, I respect, I was a businessman for a while myself, but we have to factor in the true cost of things. Um, and that's where I'd like to see us go. If we're going to make decisions based on a market economy, then let's throw in and calculate the, the true things. It's, I just read a paper this morning that said for if we would add in the cost of um, medical problems, lifetime uh, life expectancy decreases, loss of jobs from the burning of coal in the United States, it would double the price of, the, of electricity. Um, basically, it would go you know to go nine cents a kilowatt more per hour is its true cost. And then we can make good decisions on what kind of electricity, what kind of energy do we need. You know, let's get the true cost out there so we can make really good decisions that can help our economy, that can help the United States grow, but also can be sustainable. Um, for me, I ask people the question all the time, if there is one thing in the world that drives everything else, what is it? And for me, it's energy. Because if you have sustainable energy, you know, you can teach kids better. You can get water out of the deepest parts of the earth with powerful wells. You can put more water into farmlands. But it has to be sustainable so it doesn't cause other problems. So that's, I guess, one of our biggest concerns and fights is how do we use energy properly that doesn't pollute, that doesn't fill our fish full of mercury, that doesn't fill streams full of PCBs or lead, um, that doesn't emit, in, you know, fracking is one of the big things that we'll be addressing shortly, um, and especially the chemicals that are used in that. You know, natural gas is a 
pretty clean energy source. But I'm not so sure that putting ethylene glycol into the ground, along with the other things, is a really good public health thing. And so we need to address those. We need to be cognizant of those things. And we just can't be so dependent, addicted to fossil fuels and other forms of energy that we just don't wake up and realize what it's doing to our children and our nation and actually the whole world. Well, unfortunately, as we've seen throughout the last several decades, uh, the environment has uh, seems to have played this role as a scapegoat, if you will, where maybe not not a scapegoat, but just um, a way to uh, just get out of taking responsibility for issues that a corporation is not necessarily prepared to deal with. And I just want to mention also that um, I'm not anti-business. I'm not anti-money. I think everybody should own their own business. And I've said, that, I've said this time and time again. Uh, everybody should have their own version of the American dream. Why not? But what I am against is irresponsibility. And if you look at the way that uh, different corporations have basically dumped waste into the land thinking, well, you know what, it'll clean itself up or let somebody else deal with it. And then all of a sudden, uh, within a short space of time, there are issues with cancer or other diseases. Uh, and inevitably, the people that live in that area will pay that price. So the bottom line is, is that the responsibility really needs to be uh, addressed and there needs to be more accountability for specific industries where they're working with materials or or produce waste or should I say generate waste that needs to be handled properly and unfortunately we just don't see too much of that well and I think you know we saw a great you know after I'm old enough to remember <clears throat> the love canal you know, in the 1970s brought great environmental awareness in the United States. And I think even up through the early 80s, we had a great movement of doing that. And then we started to turn a little bit the other way. We started to, to put, to say that, you know, businesses weren't going to do that. Well, just like all human beings, people sin. They make mistakes or they make poor choices or they make the wrong choices. And what we'd like to see, and like we're working to do, is let's have those kind of moral decisions that protect people, that help us to realize the real cost of what it does to do something. Like, I don't believe you would not be very happy if your neighbor took all of their trash and dumped it over into your yard and just left it there and expected you to deal with it. And, of course not. And, and that's basically what we've allowed to happen for so many industries. We've allowed industries across the board to dump their trash into our yards without any accountability, without paying for it, and now who's paying the price? It's our health. Now, one of the most staggering statistics that is out there today, and you know, coming from a man that may not be as impactful as coming from a woman, but right now, one in eight women in the United States will get breast cancer. One in eight. Less than a generation ago, that was one in 20. Anecdotally, I do a lot with pastors in Africa who are battling other problems and from things like climate change. And one of the things we talk about is that, you know, in Africa, and there are a lot of other diseases and environmental impacts there, but breast cancer basically doesn't exist because they don't have the chemicals. I mean, they have enough of other problems. But things like those types of cancers just simply don't exist. And so what's the difference? You know, well, you have an area where you're exposed to different chemicals, and then you have another area where they're not exposed to the chemicals. I mean, it's a very easy thing to uh, see. And, and it's right. It's like the, you know, the... the um, uh, the uh, Toxic you know, Safety Chemicals Control Act that's been around for for basically, I think it was 96, was the first toxic, I think it's, I'm trying to think of the exact name of it, 
basically back in the 1970s, we came up with a, a law that would control the amount of toxic chemicals and evaluate them before they're put in the market. Um, it's a law that's not been changed since 1976, and I think it's only evaluated, you know, a couple dozen real chemicals, and there are now, you know, like 7,000, 75,000 different chemicals on the market. It's called the Sub Toxic Substance Control Act. And, you know, the way the law is written is basically self-regulating. You don't have to prove that some, or show that something is good or doesn't harm before you put it on the market. So it's sort of put it on the market, find out what happens, and then you can pull it back off and then be sued or whatever the case is. And I think that's sort of preposterous that, and that legislation is stalled in the Senate right now, um, in the, all through the House, because nobody wants to do another regulation. But how do we deal as a society with those 75,000 chemicals that just get spewed into our environment? Well, it's like with everything else. I mean, you look at uh, the situation with the GMOs and the neonicotinoids. Uh, you know, these these chemicals have been allowed uh, into the uh, into agriculture, and it's it. They're trying to say that everything's fine, and you have so many people, including scientists, that are saying, "No, it's not. Don't do this." And it, you know, the bottom line is, is until we get to a point in society where people work together and they say, okay, enough is enough, we don't want this, right. then they will bring about the change. And, I mean, you see it with so many other issues that are not health-related that are completely ridiculous. And if things are changed overnight, literally, you get somebody that's really ticked off, they hit a nerve, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a big change. Um, and with things that pertain to our health, especially with children, it seems as though it takes this, uh, you know, this enormous effort that needs to take place over the, a very long period of time in order to facilitate the necessary change that's, that we need. And, and I think that's exactly where we have to go, is we have to develop a true grassroots network of people that want to have change, that want to lift up change, and that want to do things a different way. But one of those are going to be this basic, I think it, it is going to require a lifestyle change. It's going to require us evaluating what's really important in our lives. And I think that's where people of faith really need to step in and say, you know, are these good discipleship? Are these good moral faith-based decisions? how we're caring about the earth, how we're caring about our children, even how we're caring about, you know, who we are as a people. And those are long issues, and, you know, we could probably talk about those for hours and hours, but we need to develop and work together. And I'm an evangelical Christian, and I make no bones about that, but I can work together with other people, too. Um, when, you know, it was interesting, I had the honor of um, speaking when the first, it's called the natural mercury and air toxic standards, was actually promulgated, when it was made effective into law back in December before Christmas, I got the opportunity to stand up um, and speak with Janet, Jack Janet Jackson, excuse me, Lisa Jackson, the administrator of the EBA. Sorry, yeah. sorry about that, Lisa. Um, and, you know, in my heart, was, you know, I, and I looked at her, and, and, and she is a person of faith, but has some little different values than I do, especially on things like pro-life, which I am considerably pro-life, and but I'm pro-life whole life. Um, and I said, you know, we may not agree on everything, but we can agree on the need to protect children. And I think that's where people of faith, whether you're Jewish, Muslim, Catholic, or have no faith, we can agree that we need to protect our children. And then we can find those common bounds. Instead of finding the things that break us, let's find the things that bring us together. And for me, that's the love of Christ. But, you know, and I can work with other people because of that. Jesus said, you know, we're to love our neighbor. He didn't say to love our Christian neighbor or anybody else, but he said to love our neighbor. So whoever is our neighbor worldwide, we need to work with, we need to protect, we need to love. And, you know, I'll use those opportunities to demonstrate who I am in Christ, and if people want to decide to join and follow Christ, that's, we can work on that together. But the important thing is, the beginning thing is, let's do the things that are protecting our children, 
that are not allowing them to have the kind of life we want them to have that I believe God created them to have. When you take I points, IQ points away from children, can they succeed to be the best God wanted them to be? If they have asthma, chronic asthma, or heart conditions, or cancers, they're not having the opportunity to have the life that God intended them to have. And that's why, for me, this is a moral, faith-filled, biblical question, all of the toxins we've been talking about. I mean, I'm passionate about this, and you can tell that. Mm. I mean, I, I love the Lord, you know, God, all my heart. I know Jesus is the God that I know best, but he's called me to be part of this work together of protecting the least among these, those that are really, truly um, need our help and need protection. And, you know, it, it just, one of the images of, you know, going back to mercury and actually all environmental toxins that just is, I actually go to bed some nights thinking about this. Um, mercury, other heavy metals, and other things that are in adults, how the body gets rid of them is just like we get rid of all of our other waste. We go down to the little room and use the white throne. <laughs> but, you know, a baby in utero doesn't do that. Mm. So a child for 40 weeks is recirculating these toxins, whether it be mercury or arsenic or, you know, the whole range of other organic chemicals that are out there. They're circulating them inside their small brains, in their hearts, and they can't get rid of them. Mercury, for example, you know, and this is been proven on lots of studies, the amount of mercury that's in the cord blood, which represents the actual, you know, fetal blood, the blood of the child, is sometimes, is definitely two and sometimes as much as four times that of their mother because they just can't get rid of it. And, and so we need to think about those terms, and, and that's one of the things that makes, you know, unborn children so special is they have no way to get rid of this junk. And it's literally tearing them up. Well, the bottom line is is that they can't speak for themselves. And the thing is, is that if the adults are the ones that are creating these problems, we have to take responsibility for the actions, whether it's our actions or address the actions of others to make sure that those that cannot speak for themselves are protected. And, you know, I say that about humans, I say that about animals, I say that about all God's creatures. And um, I may not be a reverend, well, I'm definitely not a reverend, but um, I also believe the same thing, that, you know, it's um, it, it doesn't matter what you believe in, whether you have a belief in anything, it's, it's your... It's your responsibility as a human being to make sure that, you know, we're doing everything that we can uh, to protect not only ourselves, but the people that we love. I mean, just because uh, for folks out there that may have different beliefs, whatnot, uh, maybe you don't have children and you don't want to have a family. You know, that's your choice. But the thing is, is that there's got to be somebody out in this world that you do love, that you do care for. Why should they be exposed to this? Um, and that is basically what I try to encourage people to think about. And uh, you would think that there would be more of an outcry from uh, the different religious communities when it comes to uh, the environmental issues, uh, especially with GMOs and with the, the neonicotinoids. Uh, and it's nice to see that there is an increased um, involvement as far as awareness and advocacy. But, uh, you know, where where do you intend to go as far as getting the message out to more and more people, Mitch? Well, we're constantly doing that. I mean, our, our staff, um, I'm a member of the, national, the, the Board of Directors of the National Association of Evangelicals, and we work with them. You know, in my community, the evangelical community, we're constantly educating, speaking at churches, our website, our magazine, Creation Care. So we're continually, and we've been doing this since 1993, and especially in the evangelical church, which has had a sort of a tradition of not trusting science too well. We've made great strides, especially among, you know, people my age and younger, of really lifting these concerns of environmental health up making people aware. 
And so it's a constant effort of speaking, talking on radio shows, writing books, whatever we can do to really to educate people that we need to stand up and make a difference. And, and again, I, I want to reiterate that it's we need to make a difference in public policy and we make, need to make a difference in our own lifestyle. Um, and I think those things are the message of, of what we need to be. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about a biblical perspective is that, you know, sustainability has been a long part of the Bible. You know, first in Genesis, the way God created it. And then for people of faith, whether you're Jewish or Christian, it's really kind of fun to go back and look at Leviticus and look at the ways of, of caring for animals and caring for the land. There were some very early, very good sustainable farming practices listed right there. You know, and it was already then God was setting down some rules to, to really to protect this creation that he made so it can continue to feed us and to clothe us and to help us to live the, the abundant life, the joy-filled life that God would like every citizen of the world to have. And so I think those are really common things that we need to focus on of the back to living sustainably that can help us and help our whole world and every child, every one of God's ch children that's here to live a better, more productive life. And it's and I want that around the world, whether it's a child in Africa or Bangladesh or here in the United States. Mitch, can you tell our audience how they can subscribe to your magazine? Um, the easiest thing is to go to our website, www.creationcare.org, and you'll find a way to subscribe to Creation Care. You can see all sorts of information on there. If you go to our Mercury page, for instance, you can see the advisories and the recommendations for women who are pregnant or planning to get pregnant for Mercury, uh, the what fish to eat, what fish not to eat. So we try to keep that updated as, um, you know, and updated and very current on the latest things that we're working on. But again, we, like anybody else, we choose to work on certain things that we believe God is calling us to work on. And we partner with other people who have greater expertise on on different issues because, you know, it, one of the great things about being a network is I don't have to have all the answers for everything. I can turn to my friends like June or other people. Um, in fact, we mentioned sustainable farming a minute ago, and, and I, I really want to give a, a shameless plug to a friend of mine. There's a, a pastor out in Ohio who's setting up a, a national network of community sustainable gardens called Goodness Grows, oh, where, he's, where he's willing to, to go and his team to areas, to especially you know their first focus is going to be working on inner cities, of teaching farming practices, organic farming practices, and helping people to get reacquainted with the earth. Because that's one thing that in our, since the Industrial Revolution, I'm a firm believer of this, the more we lose contact with the creation, especially the, the good earth, and digging in it with our hands and growing it, the more we don't value it. And I think that's I, so important to see in elementary schools, to have small community plots where people can grow their own carrots and tomatoes and onions and even Brussels sprouts and see what it's like to get your hands dirty and watch a plant grow and not put tons of, of you know, nitrogen fertilizer or other or pesticides on board it but to, to, to pull the weeds by hand and to groom it and care for it and those are some things that would help us to return to and take charge of our own lives and that's why i think we need this mixture and balance of having good policies but personal responsibility and personal accountability and it's very true. I mean, the more we're reconnected with how our food is grown and who is growing our food, especially if we're growing it ourselves, not only do we have a financial benefit, I mean, you, you can't beat the cost of growing your own food, uh, but the bottom line is is that you have, a more, you have more of a, an appreciation for what you have in front of you. And unfortunately, in America, and I, um, I know that we have a lot of listeners that are located all over the world, but unfortunately in America, and I say this as a master composter who does a lot of public education, we waste a lot. And if you grow something, you take the time to nurture something, to cultivate it, you're not going to be as quick to waste it. You're going to be more conservative with what you have. 
And uh, I, I think that that's also very important, especially when it comes to being responsible for you, how your food is produced. And also I just want to mention that uh, there are so many people that live in an urban environment that have uh, rooftop gardens, community gardens in their neighborhood. Uh, a lot of people are, uh, what I mentioned before, with Sweetwater, they have aquaponics systems that are being built in urban communities where communities can actually grow their own food. I mean, it's fantastic. So, um, you know, there's always a possibility, regardless of what your situation is, whether you live in a house or you live in a little shoebox apartment, doesn't matter. Uh, if you have a windowsill, you can grow something. And even if it's just a few containers, it's still giving you that opportunity to take responsibility for your own food. And, you know, don't forget that there's nothing better than the taste of your own freshly grown organic produce. Oh, and, and I agree completely with that. And, and one of the things that I keep telling people is if you know the, the story in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. Mm. When, when I was growing up, you know, we didn't eat oranges in the winter. We ate apples in the fall. We ate blueberries in the summer and strawberries in the spring. And they were part of the natural cycle and rhythms of life. And, you know, we weren't importing our apples from um, South America or our oranges from who knows where. Mm-hmm. And I think those are things that are very important that for us to get back into the tune of God's creation and not depend on... You know, on shipping everything that, you know, number one, you know, you don't ship an orange or an apple from Chile and have the same quality you do from one that's grown next door. Oh, certainly not. Not to mention the fact that uh, when it comes to the importation of these crops, and uh, I had Matt McLean on, who's the president of Uncle Matt's Organics. He's uh, a citrus farmer, and he's also the president of the board of directors of the Organic Trade Association. Matt said point blank, the issue that the citrus growers are having with the Asian salad is basically because of the fact that as consumers we've been demanding fruit that is cheaper that uh, is being imported during peak season which makes absolutely no sense because citrus in America is you know it's number one so why would we improve why would we import inferior produce during peak season It, it just does not make any sense but the bottom line is is that consumers need to recognize the fact that we don't need to have 10 different varieties of oranges, especially when it's peak season. You know, use what we have locally. You don't know what's happening when it leaves our border. Or, I mean, when, when, it comes, when it's uh, grown outside of our border, should I say. And the bottom line is, is that once we stop that mentality and we start eating what is grown locally, organically, and in season, that's when the change really will begin. And, and especially, you know, and also besides the pesticides and other chemicals and how it's grown, we have no idea on the transportation cost of importing vegetables and fruits from so far away is just extremely astronomical and unhealthy for all of us and especially on our planet. It, it definitely is, and it, it all boils down to people reconnecting with the environment, with how things are grown, with how we interact with each other, and you know what we're doing as a society to one another. Absolutely, and I think it's very important for us to reconnect that way. Mitch, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for spending uh, your birthday with us. And uh, I would like to uh, impose and ask if you would close the show with a special prayer in honor of uh, Good Friday and the upcoming Easter celebration. I would be happy to. And and just real quickly before I go to prayer, one of the things that I'd like to just share is that one of the reasons I do this, if um, those listeners care to, is turn to John chapter 20 and read the resurrection story in John's Gospel and look at where was Jesus resurrected at and who was, and who was he resurrected and recognized as. He came back to life, resurrected in a garden, recognized as a gardener. And most theologians and biblical scholars believe that that is return to the Garden of Eden. So Jesus is giving us a new opportunity to do it right. And so with that, 
Gracious God, I just thank you for this time to be with June and all of her listeners. Lord, and I ask wherever people are at in their walk with you, that you would just give them a blessed and joyous time this weekend, that you would help us all to see the value in caring for your creation, of how it impacts human life, of how it impacts every child, every person, and Lord, that you would just allow us to find the joy that only you can give. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. May you bless June. May you bless all her listeners. And I just thank you in the God that I know best, in Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mitch. And thank you, Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a great weekend, folks. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.